Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce. And I'm excited today to welcome our guest, Michelle Smith. She is the founder of Smith FSG in New York City. She works with clients providing guidance and expertise from investment details to the broad strokes of philanthropic planning and transfer strategies. And she's one of the most sought after divorce financial specialists in the country. Welcome, Michelle. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Morning. So you're also a divorce financial analyst and you hold the certified divorce financial analyst credential and you are a divorce mediator. And I also know that you work with a lot of people in New York City and, and outside of New York City who have basically what we would call high net worth and work with them in the divorce process. Is that right? It is right. And when you think about, you know, sometimes people think about a high net worth divorce and they think somehow or other it's different or it's sort of, I don't know, something to be achieved. And when you say like what a high net worth divorce is, what what would you say that that is? What makes for a high net worth divorce? Well, a lot of assets, at least two commas in your net worth, (laughs) a lot of zeros and just, you know, more money, quote unquote, at stake higher wage earners, maybe inheritances, things like that. So do you think they're more complicated than, you know, basically your ordinary divorce? It's different complicated. I mean, I think all divorce is complicated, and sometimes the most complicated divorces are when there is not enough money to go around, and we're trying to feed a family of four that's now had their net worth cut down the middle, and expenses are going to go up at least, you know, 30 or 40%. But there's a different layer to the complications when there's a lot of money to be split up. Yeah, I I think that complication, you know, when people think about divorce being complicated, and a lot of times, and I'm sure you've heard this too, clients will come into my office and say, you know, it's just not that complicated, you know, in terms of the facts. Which is when we should run for the hill. (laughs) Right. And, And the truth of the matter is, is what I say to people is usually when it's complicated, it's the feeling, not the finances that's complicated. Yeah. You know, and that it really, that yeah, sure, the facts or the finances aren't that complicated, but the feelings that surround them are often very difficult. And that is, I think, not less so or necessarily more so when you have a lot of assets. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the source of the money is always where we look for the triggers, right? So when there's a divorce and maybe the life was created from one of the spouses having trust funds, inheritances, maybe not necessarily earned income, but generational wealth on one side. You know, the trigger there for the person who inherited the money is that, you know, this ex-husband or ex-wife shouldn't be entitled to any lifestyle that they had enjoyed maybe even for 20 years because it's not their money, right? So that quality and that trigger is strong 
and valid for the person experiencing it and also valid for the person saying, well, wait a minute, why, you know, we've got these children together, I am part of this family, why am I just expected to be cut off and going back to a a 20-year-ago lifestyle? And then there's the the people who maybe built a successful business and making a lot of money and it's it's first generation wealth from their earned income, that triggers a little different, which it might be, wow, hey, I'm 53 years old and I've been at this for 20 years and now everything I've saved, everything we've worked for is half of it has to go now. So for me, it's always looking to the source of the wealth to understand where the complications may start to happen. Yeah, I think that's really a really astute observation. In some ways, when people inherit wealth and they're dealing with this whole concept of separate property, and I don't want to get too deep into the sausage factory about what that means, but wealth that came from outside the marital relationship, they're dealing, I mean, partly with a sense of conflict between their families of origin, where the money may have come from, and the marriage. And that may have been a factor, I think, throughout the marriage. And then it finds itself writ even larger in the divorce. And those people often feel like a responsibility to steward the money, right? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It, and they were likely raised like that, right? Yes. And, and if there's not a prenup, you know, and if a prenup wasn't quote-unquote required, and I, and I think that's really important for anybody who's had to sign one to know that that's actually common. You know, if this is second, third, fourth generational inheritance, it's not uncommon to say, look, uh, we need to protect the family. It's just really hard and gets confusing and complicated when you are the spouse. Again, maybe you've had 20 years with this family. And you've been absolutely enjoying the wealth, you know, a recipient of some gifts maybe. And it's really hard all of a sudden when now it's you against the family. Yes. And you're no longer part of that sort of enclave or that tribe of people. Yeah. And and you might be for a little period of time, but, you know, and I know that you have experience with this equally as I do, you know. That window is usually not open a long time when it comes to protecting the family. And yes, you might have been part of this family for 15, 20 years, and they might be on your side emotionally with how you were wronged, if you were wronged. But when it comes down to, you know, maybe eight to 10 people behind this money, not just this couple, the family prevails. Yeah. And I think that's a tough spot to be in. And sometimes you could think, well, they're so ungenerous or they're so self-protecting, but they think of themselves as stewards. And I don't mean to refer to them like in that sort of distant way as they, but people who come from that kind of inherited wealth feel themselves often to be the stewards of this money. They're using it during their lifetime and their job is to pass it down to their children and grandchildren and future descendants. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's tough in these divorces, again, let's say you're the spouse and it's not your family money. You're just married into it. Um, There's sometimes the belief and the resentment that they're being treated cheaply 
in the divorce, and it's really unfair. Look at all the money that they have access to. Why isn't another, you know, $500,000 or a million dollars? That's going to be nothing to them. It's a drop in the bucket. This is where it gets complicated to really look at the source of the funds, the source of the money, and now how does everybody walk away with their needs being taken care of, not only in an emotional way, but in a legal way? Yeah, and a financial way to make sure that they can pay the bills and that there isn't such a great disparity between the future households, especially when there are children involved, so that children aren't going between extreme wealth and near poverty. Absolutely. And, you know, you've heard this out of my mouth dozens of times. You know, there's a lot of ways to solve the financial aspects of a divorce, right? Calculators are involved and methods of dividing assets. But one way, one way in a high net worth divorce to start, right? And I call it one bookend. There's a lot, there's two bookends and there's a lot of books in the middle that you can pull out from in between the bookends. But one really good anchor could be to start with like, what is the need? Kind of the needs-based analysis and what is on the horizon until these children are older. And if this is a spouse who truly gave up her, we're going to just make it the female for the time being, her income earning ability. You know, what is the probability of her being able to go make money if now she's being cut off from the family money? You know, the family money is still going to be there for that spouse. But what if you are the spouse that truly thought this was for better, for worse, for life, really said, you know what? I'm not going to need to earn money. I'm fine. I'm going to be taken care of. Now what? One person's going to walk back into the family money. One person was cut off. A way to start to solve for what this financial piece could be is a needs-based analysis. This is Dialogue on Divorce. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30. Or perhaps you're listening on the podcast, which is available at divorcedialogues.com, as well as on SoundCloud and iTunes and my website, westchesterfamilylaw.com. And I'm talking today with Michelle Smith, and we're talking about high net worth divorces, what they are, how they're different, and ways in which uh, people can move forward through them to reach a satisfactory conclusion on the other side. And Michelle, so the other place that money could come from in a high net worth divorce is, you know, that it was earned by one of the spouses during the marriage. You know, they're very successful in business, they work in financial services, and they've really been able to amass a large amount of money during that time. And and I think emotionally, those are really quite different. What do you think? I would agree. No less charged. It's just the polarization and the source of the charge is just a little different. If you know that there is not a trust fund, behind, let's say, 50% of the money you now have to, quote, unquote, give to the other spouse, you know, to equitably split your assets, well, there's likely no trust fund behind that, unless there is. (laughs) But most of the time, there isn't. And now, you might be in your late 40s, your late 50s, you might be in your early 60s. And how do you replace a career and a business lifetime of millions and millions of accumulated dollars, that's a really tough one for the person that feels that they woke up and they went to work every day. And there often, as you know, is a minimization that's a tendency on the spouse that didn't have to toil and labor for it, even though their contributions 
are often one of the reasons somebody could work 20 hours a day if they were building a business or traveling all over the world if you're working on Wall Street. So, you know, it's just hard when you're older, you may be past your highest income wage earning, business earning years, and now that's it. Everybody is cut off from future income and there is no trust. So equally is charged, just different. I think you're making a really good point, which is it makes a difference where in, in someone's career they are. Because sometimes people feel like, you know what, I made this money and I can make more, which makes yes. it less charge, right? Like, okay, right. yeah, I'm taking a hit here, but I'm still working and I'll be able to bring myself back up to, or at least close to where I was before. Right. A couple more good bonuses could actually make up for a divorce settlement, but it's really about being, you know, honest with yourself. As we know, that's often postured in divorces. You know, all of a sudden, the moment you get divorced, you're never going to earn money again. And we hear that all the time. Well, sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, but it's just, it's difficult when um, you are looking at splitting all of your assets and maybe not being able to replace those if you're older and, and past your prime earning years. Yeah, and I think that it's kind of an interesting thing that the way each spouse in that situation views each person's contributions to accumulating the wealth, right? So typically, you'll have the person who earned the wealth saying, well, what did, and to use your gender division, what did she do? She went to tennis, she had, you know, yoga classes, she had lunch, we had full-time nannies, so, you know, there was never a real job. I'm the one who got up early. I'm the one who worked really hard. I killed myself to make this money and she did nothing versus her thinking, you know, I, I really uh, sacrificed an intimate relationship, supported the family totally to allow the husband to work and to do this thing. I went to a lot of dinners, you know, even a case years ago, cut his hair, you know, before important meetings. And I really contributed a lot. And I held this family together so that he could focus on amassing this wealth. And that, I think, discrepancy in appreciation for each person's contributions is really problematic and probably developed years and years and years before they saw you or me. No doubt. And I say this often in the process, your communication during your divorce rarely gets better <laughs> than your worst point in the marriage. And so by the time you're in our offices, the communication has probably broken down to the point of absolutely no return. And to now expect to be appreciated for what you did 20 years ago it is a really tough one. So I think everybody in this specific situation we're addressing needs to take a breath. You need to know your value. You need to make sure your attorney knows your value in that. You need to, you know, be supported for what you did invest in the relationship in order for the wealth to have been created. But don't expect to be, you know, to, to get a gold medal now in the middle of your divorce because you were such a good, supportive contributory spouse, even though it wasn't financial. So, you know, that sort of leads me to the next question, which is really in this way, I think high net worth divorces are no different from anybody else divorcing. Do you think Agreed. so? Agreed. And, and there are some other ways too. What, what are some of the things that come to mind where divorce is a divorce is a divorce and it doesn't matter if you've got five bucks, 500,000 or $50 million? You've got to figure out what moving forward looks like. If you have children, that doesn't go away. You can't just throw money at that. There are things that you cannot throw money at, and that is your mental health, 
making sure the children are first and foremost, making sure that they are in a really supported place with two parents who are not using them and putting them in the middle. Especially, don't let these children be the financial messenger, whether you have no money or a lot of money. Don't put the children in the middle of being the messenger of dad didn't give me enough, mom has too much, she's getting this from me, she should be able to buy the shoes, things like that. This is where divorces are no different, and usually it's child-centric. To be focused around the children, and and no matter how much money you have, that I think what you're saying is your advice is to think about your children and put them first. That's your job. That's your job. You did this together. No marriage is just completely, the destruction of a marriage is rarely just one-sided, even though on the surface there could have been an event that's clearly skewed to one person leaving or doing something, but marriages end because of two people, not one. Your children likely did not get a vote in this divorce. They are the priority. The finances You have to be really functional parents together to make sure that this family that you're going to continue, you're going to be at weddings together. You're going to be at religious ceremonies together. There may be new spouses involved, but you two owe it to your children to be child-centric and watch out for their welfare. This is Catherine Miller. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm talking to Michelle Smith, and we're talking about high net worth divorces and finances and divorce, period. Michelle, if people are listening and are interested in getting in contact you or learning more about your services, how can they do that? They can email me at msmith at Smith Financial Strategies Group, but that would be smithfsg.com, or visit my website, smithfsg.com. What other advice, Michelle Smith, do you have for people thinking about divorce in terms of their finances? I think for the people before you even get married, that's a whole other radio show of (laughs) making sure that there's financial transparency. But I would say the number one thing, if you're contemplating a divorce, if you're contemplating a marriage, what are going to be the ground rules for financial transparency? Look, you're going to have to fill out a net worth statement whatever they call it in your state, you're going to have to turn over documents so that attorneys like you, Catherine, and financial people like me can tick off that, yep, the asset on this sheet is backed up by a statement. You're going to have to do this. So the earlier that you're transparent, the better. There's more trust that way. If there's not an element of a surprise, I find that when there's an economic or a financial surprise at the beginning of a divorce process, it could completely derail the entire rest of the process because immediately it's just clouded. It feels like a lie and a betrayal. And so really being financially transparent, no matter what, might be lurking under the surface with your finances. Come clean, be transparent, and disclose. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah, and I think that's really kind of an interesting thing because sometimes people feel that it's a better strategy. You know, if they see how much there is, right? Now back to the high net worth thing. If Mm -hmm. they see how much there is, then they're going to want a bigger piece of it. And, you know, that may be true. But on the other hand, if they feel furious because it took weeks and weeks, maybe months or maybe even court processes and motions and all of that kind of thing in order to get just the answer, then it feels like someone is trying to withhold. And that's worse. And that might be a strategy. 
certainly in litigation, it, it, it often is. It's, you know, come and get it versus here. Here it is. You know, come and get it. Let's see if you find everything, especially if there's complicated investment entities and, and, um, you know, assets. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, you got to disclose and it just is what it is. If your goal is to stall your divorce, don't disclose. But most people want their divorces over as economically and as quickly as possible. Yes, there are outliers for people that are just enraged and they just need their day in court thinking that that's going to be fair. But most sane people want their divorces over as fast and as economically feasible as possible. Withholding information is a guarantee to delay the process and add layers of experts and cost. Sometimes really quite significant cost. Significant. Do you think, Michelle Smith, that it makes a difference when the the woman has the money versus the man? I think there is a there is a uh, definitely a quality to that, no question. But people are people. Humans are humans. When it's kind of a natural initial instinct when you made the money to call it yours, right? In a divorce, you need to be careful about that because either party, the husband or the wife that stayed at home or didn't contribute that way, you know, there is an initial instinct where you're like, I did all this. I worked my butt off for this. So that that's why men and women alike, you got to take a step back and look, if it wasn't fair and your husband or your wife was not that economically contributory person, well, that was your marriage. You were half of the creation of that. That we can't fix. But for the people that didn't work to create the income, man or woman, it is absolutely a natural initial instinct to want to protect your money. It just becomes a very sensitive derailing trigger if you continue to call it your money, just like when people call them my kids. No, they're your kids. It's your money, not just one person's, unless it's the inherited situation. Yeah, I think legally it's the same. I think that financially it's the same. But I do think at this moment in history, it feels a little different when you have the woman, for many people, not for all people, the woman who's earned the money versus the man, just from an emotional perspective. I think it sort of brings me back to the early days of equal distribution. I wasn't practicing law when the law passed in New York, but I started practicing in this area not that long after. And it kind of brings me back sometimes in the feelings about how resentful the higher earner is about sharing the wealth that's been accumulated. Well, I think also there's another layer to it if you're the woman who's economically in control and made the money, because you're probably also doing more than 50% of the lift work and the heavy lifting for the kids. That's just still quite societal, where mom is still mom, and mom is doing more of the parenting, not saying dad isn't a good dad. This is very different what I'm talking about. And so there is, I find, you know, with women who are the wage earners and the parent that the kids are going to when they're sick or that need to, you know, call the pediatrician, get this organized, there is a little bit of a resentment there because it's like, wow, really? So I've done everything, including make the money and you get half of it. Right, no exactly. question, that's a very real feeling. That is. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the lack of appreciation for what he's done in those circumstances also is there. You know, just Absolutely. Go, right. So, Michelle Smith, what led you to do this work? 
You know, I never used to be able to answer that until my mom actually said to me, huh, let's see why you may have been called to specialize in divorce, you know, 15 years ago. Well, my great-grandmother, literally off the boat from Sicily, got divorced in the 50s because she was in a physically abusive relationship, and she went out and she started sewing for a living in Brooklyn, New York, and had a little dress factory. And then my parents got divorced when I was three and my brother was six months old. That clearly had a devastating and realistic impact on my early childhood. And then my mom got divorced from my stepfather when I was a teenager. So I've really grown up watching this and I'm divorced myself. And so for me, you know, I I say I don't have a career or a job. I really have a calling and it is really to, you know, help fix the broken business model of divorce and to get people through this financially intact, emotionally intact. Unfortunately, this has been a part of my family DNA and, um, uh, you know, I'm on a mission to help people uh, as best I can. Well, Michelle Smith, I think that's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much for being a guest on Dialogue on Divorce. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Catherine.